Ankita Krishnan is a child psychologist out of Austin, Texas. If you're like me, it's been a while since you've been a kid, and so it can be kind of hard to remember what being a kid was like when everything that happened was like the biggest or the worst or the best. Being an adult around kids, we can kind of come at them with a sort of uh, indifference to what might be really significant moments in their lives. Um, Ankita helps us dissect how to not overthink those moments and still how to get them right. And also just what being a psychologist is like. This is like the worst week of winter weather in a hundred years in Texas. And Ankita was down to meet and do our talk. That was really cool. So stay tuned as Ankita talks about all that and more. And uh, I look like Mr. Rogers. Hey Ankita, thanks for being here. Hey Anand, thanks so much for having me on. When did you know that you wanted to work with children? So I've always loved working with children. Um, my mom was a teacher and I actually wanted to be a teacher for a long time and then changed my mind, especially after kind of interfacing more with, you know, my neighbor's son and meeting other kids um, that really kind of solidified my passion for not only just like being with kids and I used to take care of kids when I was younger too um, but then actually pursue a field in it and I've never I've been lucky to work with people across the lifespan so I've done adult focused work as well um, but I think the the piece that constantly has always been rewarding for me and that I just always I still have a passion for is, is working with kids and family so that's that's why I decided to specialize in it. Do you feel like, do you feel like you wish you had someone like you in your life when you were a kid? That's a good question. So I would say, I think really anyone can benefit from therapy or psychology or kind of talking about it. I don't think everybody needs it, right? But I don't think there's any harm to it. I, I would say, I kind of think about this that in, in this way. Everybody has a support circle, right? Not everybody. Most people have a support circle and we can think of multiple people in that support circle, right? And whether it's caregivers, whether it's family members, all these kinds of pieces, I would say having a psychologist or a therapist kind of added on to that support circle can always be beneficial because you have someone who is really meant to be kind of free of judgment and empathic and, and neutral and kind of not affiliated with the family. I don't think there's any harm to that. So I do think kids, um, especially children who are fortunate to get a lot of support from their parents, that's great. At the same time, it can always be helpful to have that external perspective too. It feels like a lot of people who join our profession are people who felt that there was a need that was untapped in their childhood, let's say, or something that they they realized could have been done better, not at not to blame their parents or their caregivers, but to say that here's information that that uh, you know I gathered, and so I'm gonna make this easier for someone else, you know. For sure, and I would say a lot of people I know, especially even though it's a small community, the South Asian professionals I know came from that perspective, right? Of I didn't have this when I was younger and I wish I did. And I would say I, I adopt that perspective in other areas in terms of mentorship and supervision. Um, and I had great mentors in grad school, but kind of 
before that in psychology, just didn't know anybody, right, in psychology. And so that's why I really try and whenever I can be a mentor or lead, I can try and do that. I would say I'm pretty lucky uh, in that I have a supportive family system and, and supportive parents and didn't, as a child, really feel like that was missing. Um, but I have a lot of friends who did. And so I can understand. And so I think that is what kind of inspires me more so. Not that it was missing from my childhood, but I know so many people who didn't get that. There seems to be this, this, uh, this ability that um, some parents have to raise their kids with a therapeutic mindset. And mm. some, and some par parents don't natively have it. And there are a lot of par parents who wonder if they have it and, you know, they, they want to learn the skills that, uh, that they could use to, let's say, embrace confrontation or joy or their kids' more confusing emotions. Um, what, what, can what can parents who don't know intuitively how to raise their kids therapeutically, what kind of, what kind of advice do you have for parents like that? What I always find to be helpful is first to validate and acknowledge that parents even have that thought, right? So the fact that they are, they have this desire to either adopt therapeutic principles or support their children emotionally in and of itself shows that they're invested in that aspect of the child's development, right? So I always like to validate and kind of affirm that in parents first, that you have this desire. Um, I would also say, I think, before I share any recommendations, it's always helpful for me to get a sense of what, what are your values as a parent, right? And what type of a parent do you want to be for your kid? And kind of talking about how do those values align with you know, your background or your culture? And how do your, how consistent are your parenting behaviors with those values, right? And so I think when we have that conversation, we might already be able to identify some things they're doing that are therapeutics, so-called in nature. And then we can talk about, well, it sounds like if this is a value for you, here are some ideas for you, know, you to use with your kid that are consistent with that value. One of the ideas about uh, at least South Asians, um, South Asian households, a lot of the wisdom comes um, from without, you know, like there's authorities that are either religious or parental or, or uh, ancestral, you know, and these become the, uh, these become the authorities and uh, in therapy, the authority is kind of the self. And there's a, uh, there, there's actually, I found like a cool avenue into uh, making the self the authority, which is, this is something that we keep in our culture, like a fixture, which is meditation. Meditation is something mm. that people intuitively understand is, uh, is a celebration of the self over uh, outside authorities. It looks a little bit different with kids. Um, I have done it with adults before as well, but I would say in terms of relaxation practices and techniques, I tend to use more, and this is just because of my background, like my clinical background, I tend to use things like deep breathing and muscle relaxation more than meditation. Yeah. Hmm. But I have a lot of patients ask me about it. How do you manage to get kids to, uh, to sit down and do these kind of things, or do you follow, do you follow them? Whenever I talk about, let's say, so progressive muscle relaxation is one of my favorite relaxation techniques where you tense and relax the different muscle groups in your body um, and, and kind of talk about it as 
relaxation is a way to reduce your pain and reduce your stress, right? And a lot of times when we're stressed or we're in pain, over time, it actually makes our muscles more tense without us realizing it, right? And, and it can actually make our body more tired kind of subconsciously. And so kind of talk about it that way. And I think a lot of kids like that because they understand, oh yeah, no wonder my body hurts all the time or no wonder I feel kind of tense, right? And whenever I practice an exercise with the child, I'll always ask them first, right? How would you feel about practicing this with me? And then I kind of embrace that it's silly with them I tell them that I'll do it with them. If Since we've been doing sessions virtually, I'll say, I'm not going to look at you. I'm going to look at a script, you know, and then we'll practice it together. And I really let the child choose where they want to be, right? So I, I always say, you know, get somewhere where you're comfortable and it doesn't have to be sitting in front of me. You could be lying down on your bed. You could be kind of lying down anywhere. And I think anytime we can give a child choices, right, they're more willing to participate. And I, I tell them, I'm going to trust that you're doing it with me, right? I'm not going to check. Um, and I think whenever I share that language with them, then they know, okay, she's not watching me. She's not going to tell me if I'm doing it right or wrong. She's just going to explain it. And then I can kind of do what I'd like to do or kind of participate in what I'd like to participate. How similar is doing therapy with children like being their parent? Versus like, I mean, because you think about doing therapy with people who are approximately your age and there's a lot of, it feels a lot like it's approximating friendship, even if it's not actually friendship. It, it looks like that. Mm. It's like, looks like you're like a well-meaning friend. I wonder what that's like as a, like a child psychologist. That is a good question. Yeah. So I would say... Some of the similarities are a lot of ways parents are seen as a form of authority, right? And part of that is because of their status as a parent. Part of that is because they're an adult. Um, as a child psychologist, I'm also an adult. And so in some ways I am seen as a form of authority, right? Just because of my age and kind of because of my status. Um, and so I would say there's some similarity in that sense that kids know that I'm older than them and I have this form of authority, right? I think where there's a difference is there is that kind of power differential in therapy that we just can't avoid, but I really try and adopt the sense of collaboration um, and that we are in some ways at an equal level, right? Because we're understanding each other. And I think parents can do that with their kids, but that's not inherent always in the parent-child relationship. Whereas I think between a therapist and a child, for therapists who adopt that kind of approach, that is inherent in the therapeutic relationship, right? That we're kind of going along this side to side parallel and not necessarily as I'm above you, you're above me kind of thing. Mm. I, I will say that, especially I think for kids who find it difficult to kind of stay engaged, whether that's physically or, or they kind of move around a lot, they kind of stay active. There are times when you do have to be more directive and kind of help them get refocused and redirect them to the session. And at that time, it might seem like a therapist kind of seems like a parent because you do have to give more instructions. Mm -hmm. um, but that also just depends on the child. I found that a lot when I was dealing with patients who are approximately my age. It always felt like I was it was always something to overcome initially because I, I wanted to, my reflexes 
are basically to get along with this person, right? And that actually gets in the way of the work often because, you know, your job is to challenge them a number of times. And, um, and so if you're worried about being cool or being interesting or being uh, kind even, you know, it's like you can be, uh, you can be kind um, at, the, at your core, but you have to also be uh, someone that they react to them appropriately, you know, based on what they're there for. For sure. I think that is such a good point. And it is very normal, I think, as humans to want to relate to other people and, and have this sense of relatability, right? And I think we encounter that in any type of interaction and relationship. And I myself, I'm still growing and learning, right? But I think initially I had that challenge as well, you know, when I first started doing clinical work of really wanting to try and relate to my client or make sure that I wasn't saying anything wrong or that, you know, they, they really thought they could trust me. And then I realized that sometimes things became too unstructured because of that. And so I think it is always about finding, finding that balance, right? Where this is a place where you're not going to be judged, where you don't have to share anything. You're not, you know, comfortable sharing. And at the same time, there are times when we are going to do more structured work, right? And I really try and kind of give my clients that agenda or that language when we first start. So there's times when we can do fun, kind of unstructured things. And there's times when I might become a little more serious, right? Or me, where we may do something less fun. And so they at least know what to expect. Are parents more worried nowadays um, that they're going to mess up their children? When you say nowadays, do you mean kind of in this pandemic time? Or do you mean just like more recently? Well, I guess I mean, because there seems to be like a, at least a public awareness that mental health matters. And I wonder if that it, uh, it seeds kind of a neurosis among people who are predisposed to worrying uh, that if they don't do everything right, their kids are going to end up depressed or anxious or cutting themselves. Do you notice that? Or is it still that there's far more work to be done in the opposite direction? It really depends on the parent. Mm -hmm. or the caregiver. I think in general, I still see, although I feel like this past year has really kind of changed things and, and context is really important, which is why I asked you about the pandemic. Um, I would say in general, parents who express those concerns to me tend to have a higher predisposition, predisposition themselves to becoming more anxious and stressed. And so they tend to have more of those questions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And how do you assuage the concerns of those kind of, uh, those kind of parents? Because I imagine like South Asian parents probably fit in that category more often than not. Yeah, you know, it's, it can be a challenge. And I will say one of the things I often have to find myself balancing and that we talk about in therapy too is how to balance reassurance and not reinforcing avoidance, right? Or kind of reinforcing anxiety, so to speak. And so a lot of times when I work with parents, I really try and reflect their language back to them, right? So if they share a concern with me, kind of reflecting that back and letting them hear it too. And then as talking about where it's coming from, right? Um, and I think a lot of times when we can kind of explore together where this concern is coming from, it could be 
you know, I experienced this as a kid and I'm worried my kid is going to be this way. It could be everybody's talking about anxiety or suicide and I think my kid is getting influenced by that, right? Once we can start to explore those concerns, there are some areas where I can actually share with them research and facts to say, you know, actually that's a myth. You know, a lot of people have this perspective, but actually we found that talking more about suicide does not increase suicidality, right? That's one of the most common myths. And so I think when we can reflect and explore and kind of discuss those concerns and break them down, that often helps. I don't know if it always assuages or reassures the parent, but it provides them the space to talk about them. That itself is useful, just giving people yes. to, to say things and grant that they're true and not feel like they have to, in order to feel good, they have to hide the thing that hurts. You know, it can be both. It can, it can be something that hurts and you can also feel good about it sort of thing. Is there anything you've observed to be like a, a good way to use social media as a child? There's definitely the apps that are helpful, like Calm and Headspace. There's also Go Noodle, which a lot of schools use, and that's much more kid and adolescent friendly. I'm not sure if you've heard of that one. Yeah, too. yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And awesome. so it's really cool. Yes, it is. Yeah, I'm a I'm a big advocate, big fan of Go Noodle. Um, so I would say in terms of social media and, and thinking about applications, I think a lot of those are helpful and they also have some research behind them. And so I, I tend to feel more um, confident in recommending them to kids and to families. I would say social media in general, um, it's one of those areas where I have to find myself really balancing my personal and my professional beliefs. Um, Cause I, I tend to adopt a mindset where I think, I think there's maybe too much social media usage in, in some ways in, in kind of the generations younger than, younger than us, younger than me. Um, and so I would say, especially a lot of the adolescents I work with, um, when they talk with me about influencers on Instagram or musicians, right? And they, they will tell me something like, oh, you know, I can really relate to the lyrics of this song, or I can really relate to this person on social media because they're going through what I'm going through, or they've gone through what I've gone through. What I do is I first give them the space to share with me why they find it to be interesting, right? And then we kind of talk about, well, what does this do to your mood, right? How does it affect your mood when you read about this person or when you listen to this music or when you engage in this social media? How helpful is it versus how harmful is it, right? To kind of use the word that you mentioned. Mm -hmm. And I think when we can have that conversation of what does it do to your mood and does it make it go up or make it go down? Then we can talk about, okay, maybe it's a better idea to engage in this type of social media and kind of reduce the exposure you have to this because we're, as we're talking together, we're finding that it's not really helping you feel better, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so when we can talk about it in that way, I often find that those conversations end up being pretty productive with kids. Do you recommend so the way you described it, it was more like you were talking to, to the patients themselves, children. Do you recommend parents confront kids in the same way about their social media, or do you recommend like a different approach for parents to take? So I think that's a good question. The way that I talk about it with families and with parents is to try and encourage as much of an open communication as they can, right? So if they're okay with their... As, as much as they can be, if they're okay with their kids engaging in social media, having open conversations about these are the things you can do and 
let's talk about it, right? What are you seeing these days? What are you reading about? And having more of a discussion about it that is more curiosity oriented than it is managing oriented. So I'm not asking you these questions so I can keep a check on what you're doing, but I'm asking you more so that I can, because I'm curious, right? I want to learn from you. And so when I talk about it with parents, I often discuss that recommendation and suggestion with them of, you know, talk about it with your kids in terms of you're trying to learn from them and less so you're trying to impose or something exactly impose yourself and when you learn from them and if you hear something that's concerning right then that can allow you to have that conversation of oh you just told me that mm, okay can i tell you what i'm thinking when i hear you say that or you telling me that i know that's that sounds maybe too formal <laughs> right but um yeah, like here's here's what I'm thinking after you share that with me, then you can have more of a maybe back and forth conversation about it. I think that I would be hard to have that conversation with if I was a child. Like, I think sometimes like if someone asked me, like, why do you eat all the Halloween candy on in one day, right? Which is a similar problem to like, why am I on Facebook for four hours, right? It's like, mm. I, I, would, I don't know if I would be as a child eloquent enough to, uh, to say, you know what, I want to eat this now, but later I'll feel bad about it, you know? And I wonder if that's the attitude that parents are, they understand that. And so that's why they're saying, they're taking a much more paternalistic or authoritative role and saying, no, you know, social media is closed beyond 6 p.m. or whatever, you know, they take uh, approaches like that. Does that ever work to take like such a hard stance? Or does it just like move the problem down the road and then it becomes harder to address later? adults or parents are able to have that kind of bigger picture and future thinking perspective because you've had the experience to tell me, right? That spending 18 hours, it's an exaggeration, but 18 hours on social media is going to hurt your brain cells, you know, because I, I've experienced that myself and now I know, right? But for kids, one, they don't have that experience yet to tell them that. And then secondly, it's more difficult to kind of engage in that future oriented, bigger picture thinking. And so, really using what your kid knows, right? And reflecting that back to them. If, if your kid is noticing that they have trouble concentrating in math, use that in your conversation with them, right? You know, you've told me that when you play Fortnite for six hours, you're not able to finish your Algebra 2 homework. Okay, let's talk about what we can do to kind of help you with that, right? Instead of saying, I, you know, if you spend all this time on video games, you're not going to get into college, right? Right now, that's too difficult for a child to conceptualize and envision. And so really use what they know in that moment and yeah. be in the present with them to kind of have that conversation. Hmm. This is kind of an aside question. It, it might not even be part of the interview. When we talk about like, you know, kids who are raised in this way, this is like a way that I know a lot of people who are wonderful people whose parents did their best and didn't manage to do this kind of thing. And, and as a result of it, they're, they're kind of, they're damaged, but they're funny, they're artistic, they're creative, they're musicians, and they have lyrics that, they, that are full of meaning and all these things. And I wonder, how do you, what kind of, what kind of emotional world does a child who's actually supported and nurtured all through their childhood and adolescence, what kind of emotional world do they have? They don't turn into Bob Dylan, certainly. Chris Rock used to say that, you know, we need bullies because bullies make comedians, you know, and I, I always wondered about what what the cost is of a of a childhood that is 
perfectly nurturing, if, the, if that's even a, a legitimate way of framing the question. I feel like the term emotionally nurturing is so culture dependent. And so I don't, what is emotionally nurturing to one society or community can be very different to another one. And that having emotional kind of healthy, so to speak, emotional development during childhood is also very culture and context dependent, right? And so I, I wonder when someone says I come from a family that's very, so kind of like what I said earlier, right? Like a family that's very supportive and, and very, you know, emotionally open, what does that actually mean? And if I describe that to somebody else, they may say, oh, actually, you know, your childhood, you didn't have all these opportunities that I had or vice versa, right? And so I think that's why it's, it's a little challenging for me to answer that question because I, I think it's really dependent on... That's actually, it's, it's true, right? Because there's a, it's, um, it's hard to say that everyone received the same pill as far as a good childhood. It's, it's not a quantifiable entity. So it's like, it, it's culturally dependent, but it's also an individual child will need a very different kind of support than a different individual child, right? Right. And I don't mean, I, I don't, I also don't adopt the kind of other perspective that nothing is universalistic, right? Because there are definitely perspectives and, and tools and skills that I think universally are positive and, and beneficial. Um, but I think especially with these types of areas, I kind of stray away from maybe delving too much into that because I, I do think culture plays such a big role in it. What can parents do um, let's say that they don't, they don't have time to go to a therapist or they don't have time to, let's say they don't even know if their child needs therapy or just needs like help in some abstract sense, you know, what can they do? Like what resources would you recommend that they look into books? Let's say you mentioned some apps before. Yeah. So apps, if families have access to apps and are kind of open to using apps, things like Calm or Headspace or even Go Noodle are some of the first ones I think of, but I know there are many, many other good ones too. Yeah. I think your question has multiple parts, right? One is, um, how do I know if my child needs therapy? I think that also has multiple pieces. One of the things I can think about is, you know, what, what brought you to that question, right? And Every child has challenges. Every family has challenges. I think when we consider whether or not therapy is an option is whether those challenges are one kind of impacting their functioning in a lot of different areas. So whether that's school, kind of doing the things that they need to do at home, other chores and other routines. And if it's getting to the point to where parents and caregivers are trying as much as they can, but it's still challenging, that may be kind of the line or the, or the threshold to say, I think therapy could be helpful, right? To kind of add on some support um, because you've clearly tried these strategies and techniques and either they're not working or you're still experiencing maybe the same level of challenges, right? So that's kind of one thing I would think about in terms of whether or not therapy is needed or, or should be considered. Um, I think in terms of what parents can do, um, again, it is I always like to understand kind of the parental context and the family context, but a lot of times when parents have those questions, right, 
it's very easy and they can tell me all of the things that their child is not doing well or that their child is struggling with. And so I always encourage families to think about what are the things that your child is doing well, right? And, and does have a strength in. And if you want them to do certain behaviors more so, then place more attention on those behaviors. So for example, my kid, is really loud, they run around at home, they don't do their homework on time, all these pieces, right? I'm really focusing on the behaviors I don't want to see. And so we talk about how can you positively reinforce, so whether that's praising, whether that's giving more attention to the behaviors that you do want to see. And a lot of times, even that shift in mindset can be very helpful for families of trying to kind of shift the reinforcement more on the positive behavior. Well, I was wondering how, how often you find that the reason that the parents need help with a child is that the parents themselves need therapy. Can you give me an example? Well, yeah, let's say that, let's say that the child is behaving unpredictably, right? And uh, the child is doing their best, but they have a, sort of a, a insecure attachment style with their own parent. And that's because the mother is always anxious, let's say, right? And so you, you recognize that in your encounter and you, you, you say, well, you take the mom aside and you say, maybe you should, you should consider getting your own appointments in addition to bringing your child to see me. How often does that happen? That's a good question. I actually was just talking about this with um, a family and a provider I work with. So, I will say this is this is kind of my approach, not necessarily the best approach, and I'm sure other people have great ways of, of kind of tackling it as well. Um, whenever I work with families, I always really try and be mindful and ask the caregivers what type of support they have, right? So I don't always, in fact, most of the time I don't frame it as I think you should get a therapist because a lot of times that can deter a parent away, right? A lot of people don't like hearing, I think you need a therapist. Um, because it makes them feel like something's wrong with them, even though we know that's not, you know, where we're coming from. And so I will always ask a parent, you know, what does support look like for you? What does your support system look like? You know, we're talking a lot about managing your child's behaviors. Tell me how you feel supported, right? Tell me how you feel like, how, how equipped you feel in, in kind of helping to manage your child's behaviors. And I think when, when we ask more of those open-ended questions, it gives the parent the space to kind of share whether or not they have support, you know, whether they have a partner and they're able to kind of collaborate and tag team as a family, or if they don't have a partner and if they don't have a support system, right, what would you want your support system to look like? And I think when we can have those open conversations, that can help a parent kind of recognize and identify whether or not there is a need for support right and then we can offer to them you know now that you've communicated this how do you you know what do you think about exploring some ideas together of how you can get that support hmm. i think there are many instances where parents who go through kind of a parent training program or who learn some skills and techniques for their children oftentimes it helps them feel more empowered and equipped as parents too, right? And so it can actually help mitigate some of those concerns and it provides that system kind of organically and naturally. But as you mentioned, there are a lot of parents who, even though they're focusing on, their child is their main focus and they're focusing on supporting their children, even after that, there's so many factors they're going through that they're just not getting support for, right? And so it's kind of thinking through what they need in that moment. And then after 
getting this more child-focused therapy, um, what they can do after that. Hmm. Yes, I, I feel like that's exactly right. And like I've run into the situation where I'm talking to a teenager, let's say, and uh, and the mom and her dad will be there in the room. And it's very clear that if the teenager is supposed to, is going to speak honestly, then the mom and dad have to not be in the room anymore, you know? And so that becomes the tension point because I, I say, I, I respectfully ask them if I can interview them separately. Mm-hmm. And, uh, th- you know, they're okay. But then I hear that the parents are, are, uh, resentful of that decision because they there seems to be an implication that the child has a secret world about which they don't know you know and that 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 in that world the parents are kind of an enemy what what should parents know about the private lives of teenagers and should they be offended that they're not always privy to everything going on in a teenager's, in a teenager's world so that is definitely something i encounter and experience with with quite a few parents one, I will, I will normalize that concern and, and validate it, right? That, you know, yeah, it doesn't feel good for you as, let's say, the mom, right? To not know everything that's happening in your child's life um, and kind of talk with them about why they may feel that way and kind of explore the reasons for that. I think, and this is going to depend on, on the family, but I think a lot of times the way you talk about it with families too is if if communication or if increasing trust and communication between parent and child is one of your goals for therapy, therapy can help you get there, right? And so if you're concerned or you wish your child told you more things, and I'm also building trust and rapport with the child, once I'm able to build that trust with the child, I always talk with, especially with my adolescents, I always talk with them and ask them, you know, what do you feel comfortable with me sharing with your parents? And what would you prefer just stays between us, right? Keeping confidentiality limits, you know, into consideration. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the more and more we have those conversations and talking about the teen of, you know, okay, you felt comfortable saying this to your mom, what do you think about this, right? And, And I think we can build joint parent-child moments into our therapy sessions, right? And kind of allow them to experience what it feels like to have these more open conversations in, in front of kind of a neutral, safe person. And I think when we can gradually build those moments into therapy, it becomes a lot easier for that to become natural at home, right? Because you're able to experience what it feels like to tell your parents something that you wouldn't have told them before. And have whatever reaction you have. And now that you've had that experience, and let's say hopefully it was a a pretty positive one, right? You feel like you can do that more at home and not just in therapy. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Yeah. So you're you're kind of, uh, you're not necessarily modeling yourself. You're modeling a situation that that Mm -hmm. that, that room becomes a model. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, Therapy can actually be a really powerful space for people to experience moments that they didn't always think they could, right? And I think anytime you can experience something that either feels good or empowering to you, it's one more piece of evidence you have that you can experience it again, right? And so one of the goals with therapy is the more you can experience this, the more and more we're we're kind of working towards you experiencing it on your own so that maybe you don't need therapy as much, right? Kind of this goal of becoming your own therapist. And I think the same works with 
other areas too, if it's parent-child communication or you know, experiencing more positive mood, any of these areas. You have, you, pro you have a clinic over there, but do you have, are you taking patients? Do you want to like plug your uh, clinic or anything like that? <laughs> so that's it. I, I appreciate that. So it is, it is not my own practice. So there's not necessarily any public, I, I don't, it's not a private practice that I own. I work for an institution. Okay. Um, I, I don't, <laughs> I don't necessarily say I have any plugs for myself. I mean, in general, I think talking about mental health is, is always important and I feel very privileged that I can talk about it. Um, I think organizations or communities like yours or kind of the podcast that you all have, I think is so important because it's while there's a lot of progress made in our communities in talking about mental health, there is still so much more to be done. And I think the more people see or hear people like us kind of talking about it, the more it's normalized for them to discuss it too. And so my, my general plug is just, you know, my hope is that people have mentors and people who they can find support in their communities. And if you don't use, you know, I would encourage you to try and find that support, right? Or kind of find that support in the community. Ditto. And I'll, I'll add that it's probably really meaningful for a lot of people just to see that you exist as a South Asian doing therapy and doing, having chosen psychology as a, as a career. Um, that's something that I actually hadn't seen a lot of when I was growing up. And, um, you know, I went to med school not even knowing that psychiatry was a branch of medicine. Thank God it was. That's the only place I fit in, you know, but, mm. uh, you know, having, the opportunity to see that kind of thing growing up would have been so meaningful, I think. Um, not, not only like as a child, as we were talking about earlier, to have a, your own psychologist, but just to see that that was a job along with, you know, uh, engineer and business and astronaut, that there could be such a thing as exploring the inner world. Um, is kind of a, you know, it's one of those things where it's like, I think it came at exactly the right time for me, but I wonder what it would have been like if it came earlier, you know? That's a great point. Yeah, I, I feel like also, I don't think I knew any Indian person who was a psychologist um, or any South Asian person who was a psychologist. And I mean, studying, kind of studying here, studying the US or, or studying, you know, pursuing clinical psychology in grad school, that was normal to me because I just didn't think that they existed very much, right? Um, and the more I got involved with other organizations and communities, I learned that there are other people like me, you know, and that um, we do exist. But like you said, you kind of have to go out of your way and find that information, right? And I think one of the great things now is there are many more of us in the community. And so it doesn't feel as normal anymore to be the only person, right? I mean, that's the hope, you know, is that representation um, continues to grow. But I do think it is, it is so important. And I also think it's, I, I want to acknowledge too that people differ in their range of cultural identity. So for me personally, I identify very much as an Indian and a, as a South Asian. Um, and there are other maybe South Asian people who their kind of affiliation with their culture of origin, so to speak, is maybe not as high, right? And so 
being an Indian psychologist or South Asian psychologist doesn't doesn't mean the same thing to same people, if that makes sense. And so I think for people who aren't always sure if they should join a community, just know that not everybody is there for the same reason or not everybody who is there kind of has the same identity and same perspective. And so I think come, come with that openness to know that there will probably be, you know, other mentors or other professionals who might have similar perspectives um, as you do. And if they don't, you can always, you can contribute your own, right? right. We're always growing. So add your own perspective to this community as well. You can be the person that someone else looks at and says, oh, someone like me is doing this work. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Awesome. Well, there's something I have to do, uh, which is to say hi to you. Like, I didn't say formally hi, which is going to be on the recording, so I have to be like... And that's the show. So if you guys like this format, which is more video than audio, uh, then let us know, and we'll do more like this. Well, if you like the video, we'll do more like it. If you like the audio, well, I suppose you could close your eyes or something, right?